Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. So welcome to part two of the Catchphrase Christianity, Jesus and Politics audio blog. Um, so this is working in tandem with the, the written blog. So please do go and check out the actual blog because that articulates things far more clearly, probably far more succinctly than I'm going to do here. But what we what we want to start off with is just to recap. Remember last week's one. So last week we looked at the idea of self. We looked at the idea of freedom. We looked at the idea of power and structure. And we looked at the idea of relationships and all how that kind of interacts to create society. And we, we basically took our assumptions. We interrogated them. Um, we said that probably the modern notions in the West, at least, of freedom and self are probably way off base. And that we kind of drew those back into Christ. We grounded our truth of our existence in Christ. You know, all things have to begin and end in Christ. He is our, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the Alpha and Omega. So we drew all of that back. And now what I want to do is just press into some text of Jesus and politics. So the text I want to choose is uh, John 18 verses 28 to 40. Now, this is the interaction mainly between uh, Christ and Pilate. And it is, um, I want to use the word delicious because it is just such a stunning and fascinating piece of scripture. You can, you know, if, if you watch things like The West Wing or House of Cards, um, you kind of get the sense of this going on. There's there's all this, these kind of Machiavellian moves and maneuvers going on in this little small piece of scripture. And it's amazing how Jesus interacts with it all. So first of all, let's um, let's start off with this thing. So Jesus is brought by the temple police from the house of Annas. Now, who is Annas? He is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, this should um, ring some bells with this. This should be like, oh, what's going on here? Why was Jesus at the house of Annas? That's just such a weird detail to put in. And, and also that he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, if we do a little bit of digging, if we go and refer to uh, Josephus, um, the Antiquities of the Jews, then we find out that the house of Annas was this oligarchy, this, this powerful elite family. They had five generations um, occupying the position of high priest. So it's not just the people that lead the temple. It's essentially the people with the power. These are the power behind the throne. You know, Herod's a little bit of a puppet um, or, you know, the Herod brothers, because there's, there's three of them at this point. Um, they're a little bit of a puppet government. But the power behind the throne is this house of Annas. So we're not just dealing with, oh, it's the temple, those bad religious Jews, which is the caricature that we've kind of inherited from the Reformation. And, and Luther's kind of drawing an analogy between the Jewish religion and the Catholics at that time. Uh, so let's just get rid of that. That's just bad history. Um, so there's this powerful elite family that's behind the throne and it's telling that it wasn't the role of the high priest. It wasn't the office of the high priest that was trying Jesus. It was this powerful family. It was done at the house of Annas. Nothing to do with the high priest particularly, but this house of Annas is trying to maintain power. And they take Jesus to Pilate. Now, Pilate is, is super wary about what's going on. And you know, in the text, so verse 30, um, verse 31, you know, there's this kind of weird dynamic where Pilate's like, you know, why have you brought him to me? You know, what's this guy done? And they're like, yeah, let's not talk about that so much. Let's just talk about how you're going to kill him because we can't do it. You have to do it. Now, now you know, Pilate's not stupid and he's kind of wise to what's going on. But the fascinating thing is, his hands are tied. So Pilate's there to invigilate and oversee law and order. 
So this is the role of politics coming in. Pilate is there to invigilate from a Roman perspective, law and order in this kind of provincial place called Judea. Now, all of a sudden, he's confronted with this thing. There's this man who's clearly innocent, who's clearly a pawn in these power games. And he's having to he's forced to choose. Now, do I maintain law? This man is innocent, so I can't kill him. Or do I maintain order? Do I keep these people happy and stop them from revolting and from rioting? And so there's this funny um, contradiction that's inherent in, in, in politics, because what's happened is, is the politics of the situation, the need to keep order, the need to juggle the powers that be in, this, in Jerusalem at this time. It's taken on a life of its own and it's forced Pilate, the, the most powerful man in Israel. So he's he's the representative of Rome, the empire. Um, and he's forced into a corner by the politics of the situation. Uh, his hands are tied. He, he has no other choice than to deal with Jesus, than to execute him. And, it, and, it, and it's kind of fascinating. So he, so politics has taken on a life of its own. We might want to call this a power, you know, in the way that Paul uses the word powers and principalities. It's taken on a life of its own. And the most powerful man in Israel at the time, Pontius Pilate, he is subject to it. He, he is powerless before this power of politics. And he's forced into this funny contradiction where he has to choose law or order. He can't enforce both. Conveniently, though, with Pilate, the most powerful man in Judea is the most powerless in this moment. Jesus, on the other hand, the most powerless man in Judea at this moment, because everybody's abandoned him and turned on him, is fully in control. He has not been robbed of his own power because he is determined to subvert the system. He's determined to flip it on its head. He's determined to go into the jaws of the machine and break it and reconfigure it. And reform it from the inside. This isn't a God that's super, is superintending history from the outside. You know, if he wanted to, he could have. He could have He could have beat Rome at Rome's own game. He could have had 72 legions of angels. They could have done the legions thing. They could have done the, the colonization thing. They could, they could have done, you know, let's let overthrow all the powers. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he subverts the system from the inside. He comes into the teeth of power and he undoes it. You know, and Pilate's scrabbling around now. It's like, why have they brought this guy to me? Why have they brought this weird northerner to me? You know, are you the king of the Jews? And, and, you know, Jesus, you know, he's desperate for this guy to have some political overtones. And Jesus just, I'm not into politics. And then there's this beautiful, beautiful uh, passage um, that kind of gets right to the heart of the matter. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to present, prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came to this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate retorts, what is truth? Now, this is really getting to the, the, the heart of what we want to talk about. So Jesus bursts Pilate's bubble and our conception of power and politics. Um, Jesus says, my kingdom is not the sort that comes from within your ways of arranging power. Um, N.T. Wright has a beautiful paraphrase, actually, in his translation in the New Testament. My kingdom isn't the sort of kingdom that grows in this world. It's completely other. It's completely alternate. It doesn't work um, on the same in the same ways that our politics work. Jesus isn't the left wing to the right wing politics. It isn't the progressive or liberal as a counter to conservatives. Jesus is just from completely another place. Those things, you know, red or blue, left or right, liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat, they are just opposing sides of the same coin. Heads or tails, they're still the same bad penny. Jesus isn't there to pick sides and he isn't even there to claim power as 
some political movement. He is there to overthrow the system, but overthrow the system in a way consistent with his relational goals. And this is really important. And it's important that he says, if my kingdom were of this world, which is clearly not in brackets, um, my people would fight. And the thing is, is that we, if we find ourselves fighting, if we find ourselves trying to coerce with our own force of argument, other people to our view, we are categorically of the wrong kingdom we might have a good heart we might be inspired for the right things but as soon as we try and bend our relationships as soon as we try and coerce our relationships to agree with us to satisfy our need to be right then we are of the wrong kingdom jesus was not playing for the popular vote at times he had a large following at times he didn't but the thing is, is he didn't milk the zeitgeist he didn't milk the spirit of the day as a means to achieving his goal, because all he wanted was to win people. And as soon as he picks a side, he alienates the other side. And Jesus refuses to do this. Rich or poor, black or white, left or right, Jesus wants them all. He wants everybody reconciled to a relationship with God and each other. That is not to say that protest and critique, healthy critique of the powers and structures is completely okay. Jesus does this. He has some very sharp words for powers and structures of his day. You know, he cuts a diagonal across the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, Herod and Pilate. He comes at a diagonal across all of those. He is not opposed to them directly. He just cuts across all of their presumptions. The thing is, when we fight, we are seeking to use power to coerce other people to agree with us. Therefore, relationship is subsumed under the demonstration of power. Critique is to challenge structures of power in favour of subordinating power to relationship. Critique is bridge building. It's clearing out the garbage. It's analysing the assumptions that are underpinning things, but it's still trying to win people. If my speaking of truth to power... And my way of discussion and debate and argument and protest leaves no space for loving relational mutuality, then I am of the wrong kingdom. In whatever stance I take, there must always be room at my table. There must always be space in my heart, love in my heart for my enemy. Else I am of the wrong kingdom. Now, there's this brilliant bit as well that, you know, Jesus says, I'm here to testify to truth. I'm not here to testify to myself how brilliant I am. I'm not here to create another movement. Um, Jesus is here to testify to the truth, the truth that God is relational, that he's there. He's loving. He wants everybody reconciled to him and he is willing to die for that truth. As soon as we start to obfuscate the truth. What is truth? And deflect ourselves away from the tangible incarnated relationship in favour of abstract argumentation. As soon as we, we try and mask the truth, cloud the truth, um, you know, subsume it into other arguments. Then we find ourselves again aligned with the wrong kingdom. So let's have a look how this plays out right now. So now we've had the Black Lives Matter protests. And we've had this whole movement of, well, all lives matter. But people don't mean all lives matter. They mean those lives don't matter as much. The black lives, you know, if all lives truly mattered, then black lives would matter as well. So people have been saying, you know, uh, quipping, you know, well, just say black lives matter too. And the thing is, is what's happened is, is there's a truth, you know, like it's categoric. It doesn't exclude anybody else, but there is 
a slant in the system. There is a systematic racism against people of colour. You know, there's data that backs this up. We've got videos pouring out on the Internet. But instead of saying that's terrible, let's help, let's help. They say, well, look at these other atrocities. And it's just like we're not saying there aren't other atrocities. It's just that these people need help now. And as soon as we start to obfuscate the truth, we find ourselves of the wrong kingdom. Jesus himself is the truth, the way and the life. The truth that the centre of reality is a relational God, totally committed to ends of eternal communion with his creation. And he will submit his power to that loving relational end. And the thing is, we cannot appropriate the means of this world to achieve the, the ends of God. Um, God demonstrates his power to love us, even while we were yet sinners. The thing is, is if I make an idol out of my ideals, then I'm not using God's methods. No matter how good and how honest and how truthful and loving those ideals are, as soon as they take on a life of their own, as soon as they are asking me to sacrifice relationships for them, oh, I'm going to unfriend you because you're a Trump supporter. I'm going to unfriend you because you're a neo-Nazi. I'm going to unfriend you because you are not in favour of Black Lives Matter. As soon as I'm bending people to my will, to my power, as soon as my ideals claim my allegiance over and above any relationship, as soon as I have to coerce and sacrifice other people for my right to be right, then I'm at the wrong place. I'm, I'm establishing the wrong kingdom. At the end of the day, God is love. God is relationship. And at the heart of the kingdom is this reconciliation. Jesus reached everybody. He reached the poor. Can you imagine what it was like being followed by crowds of poor people from up in the north, from away from the centre of power, from the Galilee? And then Jesus walking through Jericho sees Zacchaeus, an exploiter of the poor. And of all the people he singles out, he could have singled out the poorest person, the most broken person, the most needy person. But no, for some inexplicable reason, he chooses Zacchaeus and says, I'm going to eat with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a meal with you. I'm going to make a cultural moment with you. Can you imagine how that alienated the poor people that have been exploited by Zacchaeus? But Jesus wanted the poor people, but Jesus also wanted the exploiters. He wanted to win them. And sometimes it looks like extending a peaceful, amicable grace over, over a meal. And sometimes it said, you brood of vipers, sort yourselves out. You know, just be, love and relationship does not preclude hard words. Uh, my wife <laughs> will tell you that. Sometimes we have, well, sometimes he has hard words for me. Loving relationship does include frustration and anger and demonstrations of that, but it does not preclude the relationship itself. Everything is subsumed in those relationships, and that is true of our politics as well. So has our politics, has our right to be right, have our opinions eclipsed our relationships? If so, then we need to have a serious rethink. So go and read the blog, go have a share. Please do come back to me. I'd love for questions. I don't think I've got it all right. How can, how can anyone possibly write a, a, a two-part blog that covers Jesus and politics well? Hey? But please interact with it. Please go read it. Um, thank you for your time. Grace and peace to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>